guys know it, it says, and these are the words of Jesus. Jesus was speaking these words. Of course, this was a resurrected Jesus who was speaking these words. And he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to and Samaria and into the end to the end of the earth and to the end of the earth. Um, many of you remember or know that that word power is the word, uh, the Greek word from we get our English words dynamic or dynamite. I mean, it's something that's powerful. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And he gives the purpose for the power of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember, um, we're told that the Holy Spirit was the promise of the Father. And so throughout Jesus' ministry, there was the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father was the Holy Spirit the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, verse 12, same chapter, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, so when they had entered Jerusalem, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So not Judas Iscariot, but this, the other Judas. So there they are, there in the upper room. In verse 14 it says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Uh, which is interesting because remember his brothers did not believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. So here we, we see them really for the first time in a positive light. And then Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. So how many days transpired from Acts chapter 1 uh, verses 12 through 14 to Acts chapter 2 verse 1? I have no idea. I don't know how we could know how many days transpired. But we're told that when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all, and there seems to be this emphasis from Luke's perspective. He wanted them, he wanted his readers to understand that there is a, there is a unity here. There is a anticipation. They are coming together. They're gathered together. It's together, together, together. They're all there. He's emphasizing that as you, as you read the account. And with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came the sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them, so they could see it, divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each one of them. So each person in the room could see these tongues of fire over every other person in the room. So they're looking around, they're all seeing this manifestation of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then we see the, the, uh, 
you know, what happens, the reaction of, of all this, it wasn't just, it wasn't just hearing the rushing wind, it wasn't just seeing the uh, tongues of fire, but then verse four tells us, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then, as you know, chapter two goes on to explain what followed. And we know that that followed that particular day. So um, people come, they begin to mock what they're hearing. Uh, they don't see the tongues of fire, but they could hear these people speaking in other tongues. Um, they're recognizing the dialect, they're recognizing the language because these men and women gathered in the upper room, they are speaking, they're glorifying God in languages that they had never learned before. And so um, they criticize, Peter gets up of course, and he begins to correct them, you know, they're not drunk as you suppose, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and he preaches Jesus, and you'll note that's it. He didn't preach the Holy Spirit, he preached Jesus. And really that's the purpose of the dunamis power, the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit was not, uh, you know, to go into darkly lit rooms and, you know, soft playing music and, and um, kind of a, you know, Christian, Christian huddle, you know, and, and let's just kind of wait on the Spirit. No, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But it's just important to recognize from the scripture we don't see any of these things, you know. Uh, it was on the day of Pentecost, when the day had fully come. We don't even know what time of day it was. The upper room, I was trying to figure out, we don't really know the location of the upper room. You might say, no, 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 we know, I've been there in Israel. Most likely that probably wasn't the location of the upper room, but it's significant. It's a, it's a place that we go to and we reflect upon what had happened as recorded by by Dr. Luke. But, you know, I wanted to know this upper room, was it an enclosed room? Because we know in that particular climate and that culture and at that time, there were many open air rooms. Um, we might call them, a, you know, a, a patio or something like that or a courtyard type of setting. Maybe it was an open air. Was it the middle of the, the day? Did they have any lamps burning? Um, I, again, none of these things really matter. I'm just simply saying that I, I'm trying to get us to, our minds to be stimulated a little bit to consider what we think of today when we think of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the purpose of the Holy Spirit. And usually it's something much different than what we see in the scriptures and because it's much different than what we see in the scriptures, we, we're used to seeing different results. I mean, when is the last time, honestly, that we've heard of someone going out, preaching the gospel, 3,000 people coming to faith in Christ? I mean, genuinely coming to faith in Christ, their lives are transformed, their lives are changed from that day forward and they begin to walk in newness of life. I mean, we just don't hear of these things. We don't see these things. You hear about these stories, and usually people can't even get the location right, and, and I, well, I heard from somebody that heard from somebody that heard from somebody, and we have these things because we're grasping 
we're grasping for something genuine. We're saying, oh, Lord, we know that you haven't changed. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Lord, you, you work the same way. And so we're grasping for that. But I wonder, I wonder if the problem is surely not with the Holy Spirit. It's not with, you know, Father. Um, maybe the problem is with our understanding of the Holy Spirit and the purpose of his power within us. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Donald Gray Barnhouse uh, wrote a great commentary on the book of Revelation, really easy to understand. If you're interested in studying the book of Revelation, you might want to get his commentary on the book of Revelation. But he wrote this, not concerning the book of Revelation, but concerning the Holy Spirit. Come in the wind, come in the fire. What, what does that remind you of? Elijah, remember he's Come in the wind, come in the fire, come in the earthquake, or in the sound of stillness. Come as thou wilt, O Spirit of God. Only come, come, come. Donald Gray, uh, Gray Barnhouse wrote that. And then, um, Charles Spurgeon the prince of preacher. You know, everyone quotes Bible teachers. We always quote Charles Spurgeon. He, have you ever seen or, or, or just looked into the volumes that have been written by Spurgeon or about Spurgeon or from Spurgeon? You know, I mean, Spurgeon is quoted all the time. But Spurgeon wrote this concerning the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without wind or chariots without steeds. Like branches without sap, we are withered. Like coals without fire, we are useless. Charles Spurgeon. And then uh, John Corson, I was talking about him, the men that came to our Monday night men's gathering well, remember that I was speaking about John Corson. He wrote this concerning the Holy Spirit. It is not enough to teach and preach about the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. We must experience him personally in new depths, or we will accomplish little. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no quickening of the scriptures. I'm convinced this is why many of professing Christians, many believers, just seem to really lack a, a, a fervent or a, or a desire of, of the word of God. You know, it's something we know we must do, but boy, just getting around to doing it, it seems like a task, you know, that's rarely, really approached. But it says, without the Holy Spirit, there's no quickening of the scriptures. Worship is hollow. Preaching is mechanical never piercing the heart. Um, you know, as a pastor, as a Bible teacher, there are times when I will sit and listen to teaching uh, at a conference or something like that. And from my perspective, it's not very articulate, it's not presented in the way that maybe I think it should be presented. 
But then you see the power of God moving and taking those words from that teacher and quickening to the heart. And it's like people are just moved. That is the work of God. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, John Corson, he goes on. He says, worship is hollow, preaching is mechanical, never piercing the heart. Conviction of sin is almost non-existent. Faith is more mental than heartfelt. Prayer meetings fade away. Yes. Church meetings become routine. And he ends with this. And Christian people stay lukewarm at best. So, I want to pray. Would you just shut your eyes and pray with me? Maybe you want to just lift your hands up to the Lord. Lord, we look at your scriptures and we see the importance of your spirit. And Lord, we know if we're believers, we have your spirit. That's crystal clear from the scriptures. But Lord, forgive us for being so satisfied with so little. Forgive us, Lord, for changing what the Bible says and creating our own theology to kind of explain away why we're not experiencing that dunamis, that dynamic, that dynamic power in our own lives, Lord. We pray, Lord, that even though our theology might be off, our understanding of the scriptures might be limited, I think of the early church, Lord. I think of those men and women in the upper room. What did they know? <laughs> what, what, what did they really know? I mean, they, they, they surely had an understanding of scriptures, but probably a, a shallow understanding of scriptures. And they had no understanding, really, of your spirit, except as Jesus told them, Lord, that the spirit is with them and the spirit would be in them, not many days from that point in time that Jesus was speaking. And then, of course, the Spirit of God would come upon them with that dunamis power. And so, Lord, we pray tonight, would you please fill us with your Spirit? Maybe some have never been baptized in the Holy Spirit. We have your Spirit if we're saved. We're sealed by your spirit till the day of redemption if we're saved. But Lord, I pray that there would be this longing in each of our hearts that would be saying, more Lord. Lord, what about this? Lord, this is what your scriptures declare. Lord, this is what took place in the early church. We pray that we would desire those things, Lord. We pray that we'd not put any limitations upon you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that even now, it's not an upper room. We're in the lower room here in the basement of the church. But we pray, Lord, for everyone who is truly longing, and even those who aren't, Lord, that you would fill us to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. Please, Lord. Those who have never been baptized, have never experienced that upon experience, Lord, Pray, Lord, that you would fall upon them now. Thank you, Jesus. Pray that we'd look for evidence in our lives, Lord. 
for some it might be, you know, they received the gift of tongues. That's not the only uh, gift that, that, that a, a, a Holy Spirit baptized person receives according to what Paul wrote. But there should be evidence, Lord. Maybe the evidence is a fervency in prayer, a greater desire to read your word and a greater understanding and appreciation for your word as they read it, Lord. A new dynamic in worship, Lord Jesus. It's not just singing songs, but there's this, this dynamic. It's not something you come in late because the worship isn't important to you. It's something you come in early so you could settle your heart, so you could worship in spirit and in truth. Please, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We don't have to beg for your spirit. We need simply ask and receive by faith, like salvation. We love you and we thank you. We pray that you'd bless our time in your word tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, it's not on the board, but, so I'm glad it's not on the board, on the screen there. So, the song we're going to look at tonight is, hands down, the most popular psalm of all the psalms. It is a psalm that is spoken at just about, you know, every uh, funeral, every movie scene you, you've ever seen on television, you know, uh, or a movie, a motion picture, when you see the gravesite, you see the priest, or you see the whoever it is, and there they are at the gravesite, that's the psalm that they read. Do you know what psalm it is? 23rd Psalm. So turn there, 23rd Psalm. You guys were making me nervous. It was like, <laughs> so I, come on, guys, I shouldn't have to give any more. Just the most popular song would probably be enough to say, I know where you're going. The Lord is my shepherd, David wrote. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In First Chronicles chapter 11, you can turn there if you're really fast, but I'm going to read it on my own. By the way, this should be a challenge for us, you know. Um, when, you know, when, uh, when we were at... Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, back in the early days. Calvary Chapel, Grass Valley, back in the early days. I know some of you guys hate hearing these stories. But, you know, we, um, we, we didn't have 
are the words to the song in print. The only time the words to the song were in print if they were a new song, and they would be printed in our bulletin, and we would sing it probably twice uh, in the morning, um, you know, service, uh, the morning services. So twice, maybe at the beginning of the worship, and then at the end of the worship, maybe the last song before we, we you know, re- uh, let everyone go home and and then we do it once more on Wednesday night and then you got it I mean you just got it I, I don't know how we got it but you just got it and you have this catalog of songs worship songs where you know someone would get up there with the guitar or you'd have a whole band up there whatever the thing was and you would begin to sing and those words would just come back to you many of the songs that we sang were scripture they weren't verbatim, word-for-word word scripture, so it wasn't like if you memorize scripture, you could memorize the songs, but they were just very simple, you know, songs, worshiping the Lord, similar to the songs that we use today. The Bible, um, we never had words on the screen. We never had, um, you know, Bible verses on the screen. Um, And my pastor, my pastors, Gib Allen in Santa Barbara and Mark um, Carlson in Grass Valley, they were constantly saying, turn here, turn here, turn here, turn here. And you would hear just this rustling of pages, you know, to this location, that location, this location, that location. I think that it was, um, it kind of was um, self-motivating or self um, encouraging, you know. I, I think you you sat there and you you saw the person next to you turning to the scriptures, and you thought, "Man, I wouldn't know the Bible that way. I wouldn't know where those books of the Bible are." And so you would kind of give your heart to it. And you know what? Before long, I mean, not long at all, you were became familiar. You're turning to the this book and that book, and you find the location and everything. And, and I think that could be a really, really good thing. We should be challenged, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, I think on Wednesday or Monday night, I was talking about, um, you know, a good kind of jealousy that we should have. We shouldn't be lazy people. The world is full of lazy people. And we want to be people who just give our heart to something and know it. And you guys know you could do this. Some of you, you know all the stats of sports teams and everything else, and you, you just got those things, or politics, man, they're just right there, you're quick with them or anything, you know, whatever your particular sport is, you know, I'm a fisherman, I'm a hunter, I'm the, you boom, 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 you got it down. Give yourself to the word of God, and you'll find that it's really not a lot of effort or a lot of uh, time that's going to be taken before you begin to become familiar with the different books of the Bible. Well, anyway. Second Chronicles chapter 11. Second Chronicles, I'm sorry, First Chronicles. I said first at first, didn't I? So now I'm really confusing you. Now, First and Second Chronicles are probably two books that you probably don't spend a lot of time in, right? I mean, honestly, you probably would go to First or Second Samuel more than First and Second Chronicles. Not that they're identical, they're not, but to kind of get the outline of what's happening. So chapter 11, it says, then all Israel uh, came together to David at Hebron, saying, indeed, we are your bone and your flesh, also in time past, even when Saul was king. You were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. 
So, of course, he was leading them out into battle and bringing them back in from battle. And the Lord your God said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over my people Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and, and they anointed David king over Israel, according to the word of the Lord by Samuel the prophet. So, back to enough jumping around. We'll make it easy. We'll camp the rest of our time. Like, I shouldn't say that. We're probably going to go a few more places. But anyway, back to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. Beautiful psalm. You know, I think sometimes if we're not careful, things begin to lose their their importance, their potency. You know, Psalm 23, you hear it all the time. Psalm 23, people read it at the funerals or memorial services of people who don't believe in the Lord. So that means that none of Psalm 23 is applicable to the person who just died. None of these things are applicable to them. Um, It's for the believer, Psalm 23. David, when did he write Psalm 23? Did he write Psalm 23 when he was a shepherd of his father, Jesse's sheep? Remember, he was a shepherd boy, and he would go out, and he'd be under the stars. And, of course, we see in, um, from Samuel that, that David referred to the fact when he was ready to go against Goliath that um, there were times that he would fight bears off and lions off. And, and um, you know, that would be a challenging thing. And, and yet he did that. And so did he write Psalm 23? Was he thinking about Psalm 23 out, you know, under the stars at night as a shepherd boy watching his father's flocks? Or, or was it later on when he became king, when he became the shepherd of, of God's sheep, that is Israel, and and he's kind of now reflecting back, he's thinking of this illustration, something that was really a part of his life, a part of who he was, being a shepherd. How, you, you look and you say, Lord, you are preparing me for the next thing. Uh, Chuck Smith, he wrote a, a book toward the end of his life, and I forget the name of it, but it was so good because he just kind of w was showing how the Lord is always preparing us for the next thing, for the next thing, for the next thing. Everything is preparation for the next thing. And, you know, when David was a shepherd boy, I don't think he ever in his wildest dream thought that he would ever be a king. I mean, remember when David was a shepherd boy, a young boy, there was no king in Israel. And, and so to even think that one day he would sit upon the throne that was non-existent as a child, I think it was probably later on in his life, because as you read Psalm 23, he talks about different things, different struggles, enemies, that type of thing, death. And I think that that's something that most of us don't really experience until later on in life. But David, he writes this psalm, and he says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, you'll note at the beginning of the psalm that he's speaking about the Lord. 
He says, the Lord is my shepherd. The, the, the word Lord there is that um, some would pronounce it Jehovah or, or um, uh, Yahweh. Isn't that the, the equivalent there, Jehovah, Yahovah? Um, it's difficult because there is no J in the Hebrew you know, alphabet. So it's that Y sound. So, but the name, the name is um, I am. It is the becoming one. So God is the becoming one. So I think of that. He is the becoming one. The Lord, the becoming one is my shepherd. The Lord, you look at the Old Testament. He is the Lord. He is becoming, becoming, becoming. You say, what, he's always changing? No, but for each situation, different situations, you know, individuals, the Lord is becoming, the Lord is becoming, the Lord is becoming. This is why, you know, the ladies last year, they did, was it last year or this year? The names. And that whenever Tracy does a study on the names of God, it's always a wonderful study. I think the women really enjoyed that study because it just amplifies the character, the nature, the care of God. The names, the names speak of his uh, different attributes. And, and so I think David says, the Lord is my shepherd, the becoming one. God is the becoming one, the becoming one, until he becomes flesh. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. Uh, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. This should cause us to think of what we just looked at a, a few months ago, John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So guys, when we're looking at the scriptures, we, we, need, to, we need to look at them and, and understand the fullness of this. There's only one God, you know, manifested in three persons. And so as David is writing this about the Lord, we're, we should be able, from our perspective, say, oh, we're no, we know who he's writing about. He's writing about one he did not know at that time, but we know him. We know him by Jesus. Um, he is the I am. He is the Lord. He is the becoming one. So he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now, you'll note next to that word want, I don't know if you have notes in your Bible. Some of you might have little notes in your Bible in the down below or whatever, and it has the word lack. I shall not lack. And I think that's probably a better word. That word probably should have been used because want is something that has to do with desire. I mean, you could have, you could have a storehouse full of whatever you love and still want more of it. And, and, but, but lack... I shall not lack. There's nothing I lack. There, there, I, I don't lack anything. Um, you know, David, as he's reflecting, you know, I wonder if he's thinking back at, of difficult times of his life, you know, maybe when he was on the run from, from Saul. You know, that was a long period of time. It wasn't just a few years. It was a long period of time that David was on the run and and uh, all of the trials and tribulations that went along with that, being falsely accused of things, those are difficult things, you know. And yet, as a young man, you have the promise that one day you'll sit upon the throne. 
And sometimes the promises of God, they seem to kind of, you know, get lost in the rearview mirror of life. You know, you're just kind of, I don't know if that's ever going to happen. You know, I don't know what that was all about, especially when you're in the midst of difficulties and, and hardships and all. But he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I think of, now, you know, again, the picture, um, the, uh, most of the pictures we see today of Israel, you know, it's pretty desolate. I mean, it's dry, it's rocky, it's dusty, it's, um, it doesn't, uh, you know, you just, it's kind of hard to picture green meadows and everything, smooth places, you know, that they do exist, but, but only at certain times during the year. And um, I kind of picture, you know, David, he's picturing himself as a sheep in, in, in this psalm. He's a sheep. Uh, the Lord, of course, is a shepherd. I was thinking about how Sometimes, do you ever feel like um, you could just kind of take um, time, off, time off from responsibility? I was thinking of moms. It's hard for moms of young children because you wake up in the morning and it's go, go, go. You know, I'm sure that moms probably... Not that they don't love their children. It's a strange thing. I know we used to go through it with our kids. Sometimes you couldn't wait for them to go to bed. And then when they would finally fall asleep, where would you go? You'd end up in their room, stroking their little head or kissing their forehead or something. And say, oh, I love this little one so much. But you know, all day long, they're driving you nuts because it's one thing after another, after another, another. And I was thinking of how you know, it would be so nice to just kind of take a break. And David, if he was king, all these responsibilities, what was he dealing with? Maybe as he's writing Psalm 23, maybe he was thinking of, oh, how nice it would be, you know, to be a lamb in the care of the good shepherd, in the care of the Lord. He's the one who takes on the responsibility. All I have to do is follow him. He's the leader. I'm the follower. He's responsible for everything. I'm not responsible for anything. You know, I wonder. He says, he leads me beside the still waters. And you'll note that there's a note next to that in your Bible, and, and it can also be translated waters of rest. Waters of rest. Now, I don't remember... But in Israel, there's a place, and if my memory serves me right, I think it's out, kind of out where Gideon and his 300 men uh, remember the brook, and they drank from the brook, and so he was supposed to select uh, you know, the men. And, and it's funny, that whole thing, when you read it, you know, he selects the guys that would be the most unlikely guys to go to battle, you know, because they're not the guys that are like this, looking, they're the guys <laughs> laughing like a dog, you know, yeah, we'll take those guys, you know, so that, so that they would know, so that all of Israel would know that the battle truly belongs to the Lord. It's not because these 300 mighty men were, you know, greater warriors than anyone else. It was the Lord that was doing it. I think it's out there, but there's this pool, and it's, um, 
it's, it's, the water is crystal clear. I mean, it's like a swimming pool, but it's not a swimming pool. It's a, it's a natural pond or area, and, and the water is so crystal clear, and it's cold. It's very cool, and, uh, you know, people come there, and they have picnics there and everything, and, and I was thinking of that when I was reading this psalm, and I was thinking of being a lamb, being a sheep, and the Lord, your shepherd, he leads you to that place, and there's the water. I mean, you can just go and drink the water. It's not rushing water. It's not a river. It's not something you're going to be caught in the, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the, the force of the, the, the water, and it's going to take you on down the, the river or something like that. It's a place of rest. And, do, and I think that as we read it, you almost need to kind of slow down in your mind, in your thoughts, and kind of imagine what David might be describing here. He says he restores my soul. The actual rendering should be, he brings back my soul. He brings it back. He says he leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. You know, um, as Christians, you know, what is really the first step of becoming a Christian? Acknowledging that you're a sinner. I mean, it really is. Because if you, if you don't really believe you're a sinner, then why would you ever come to Christ? It, it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but if you know that you're a sinner, you, you know that you're a mess, you know, and, and then you have the offer of salvation, Jesus says, come unto me, all those who labor and heavy laden, you know, and, and he says, oh, Lord, I, I want to come to you. And so we come to Christ, and as you look at the scriptures, we have many exhortations throughout the scriptures, and there are expectations. This is what I think modern Christianity seems to be missing, the expectations. Um, there's kind of this, you know, we used to call it sloppy agape, um, where it's kind of like, well, I just believe in Jesus and nothing matters anymore. I could do whatever I want. You know, the grace of God will cover it. And it's just kind of a very sloppy approach. I mean, you think of any other relationship, any other relationship. Could you imagine having a relationship like that when you're dating your wife or husband? You know, it's just real sloppy. Hey, yeah, we're dating now. You know, anything can go. You know, if I see someone that's a little bit more attractive, she'll just have to live with it. And it's all covered under the grace of God, you know. The parent that says, uh, you know, hey, there's a curfew. You're supposed to be in. Hey, Dad, man, it's all covered under the grace of God. It doesn't matter. I don't have to listen to you any longer, you know. The police officer who pulls you, police officer who pulls you over. Hey, you're speeding. You know, it's 20 miles per hour through the school zone. Oh, come on, man. It's all covered by the grace of God, you know? And don't worry about, I mean, there's no other, you know, your job. I think if people approached their jobs the way many people approach church, you know, um, it doesn't take much to keep people to come to church, but guaranteed Monday morning, they will be at work because their paycheck, you know, there's, 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 there's something weighing in the balance there, you know. I could get in trouble if I don't show up or, or uh, man, I don't want to, you know, I want to get in those hours. I want to get in that overtime, whatever it might be. And you just kind of really see the important, what's important to you, you know. But he says, for your namesake. 
I think, you know, we're called Christians. Remember the early church? Um, that was a name that was given to the believers, and it was a name that was derogatory. Christians, Christians, uh, believers in Christ, did not say, let's call ourselves Christians. No, people who were making fun of them called themselves Christians. And the believers said, well, that, that sounds good. We'll, we'll take that on. That's kind of a, that's a badge of honor that we'll wear, you know. For his namesake, we'd love to be called Christ. Christ followers, little, you know. And, and so, of course, it's something that stuck. In fact, we don't even use the term follower of Jesus as much as we should. I think that we probably should get back to that. I think, sadly, in our culture today, that Christian um, has kind of a negative you know what I mean? C connection for people, Christian. But for his name's sake. He does these things. He's speaking about the Lord in the beginning of this. And, and he does these things, and they're for his name's sake. Look what the Lord has done. This is why, you know what praise is? Praise is simply um, speaking well of the Lord, that's what praise is. Oh, the Lord is so good. Oh, the Lord is so faithful. Oh, the Lord, you know, really came through for us. And oh, the Lord has, has just been with us every step of the way. Oh, the Lord, you know, oh, the Lord, oh, the Lord, oh, the Lord. I was talking to Steve Lewis earlier today, and uh, his their great-granddaughter had her surgery yesterday. So he's giving me an update about it. And my immediate response was, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. I mean, he gets the glory. He say, oh, praise the doctor, praise the doctor, oh, whatever, you know. Thankful for the doctor. We can say, thank you, Lord, for the doctor, but praise you, Lord. Because ultimately, you're the one who works through all of these things, and you have a purpose and a plan for all things. Then in verse 4, it shifts, the psalm seems to shift. It's no longer speaking about the Lord, about what he does, but it's speaking to the Lord. It says, yea. That word yea, it means to gather. I was thinking of sila, you know, sila. What do you think of that? Uh, yea. It's like taking all of these things that I just wrote, all these things that the Lord does. The Lord leads me, the Lord, the Lord is, is, is guiding me. The Lord is providing for me. The Lord is doing all this. Yea, in light of all of these things, he says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And this is why, for you, see, it's not him. For you, he's speaking to the Lord here. For you are with me. Your rod and your discipline they comfort me, the shadow of death. You know, we're not surprised that David used that illustration because there's nothing more difficult, I don't think, the sight of heaven than death. Death is difficult. Down in California right now in Diamond Bar, um, there's the, the international... Calvary Chapel Conference, so about a thousand men and women are gathered down there, and as we were uh, eating an early dinner tonight, we were listening to Mike McIntosh, we're watching it, you know, it's great being able to watch it uh, 
on our television, on uh, YouTube, you know, and um, but we're listening, watching Mike McIntosh. And Mike McIntosh um, used to be Tracy's pastor when she was 16 years old. When she came to Christ under Mike McIntosh's ministry. He was pastoring Calvary Chapel San Diego back then. And so we're listening to him, and, and he's just sharing, you know, and all of these, like, uh, you know, kind of like that first generation of Calvary guys. Man, they all look so old. <laughs> so old, because they are old, you know. But um, they're, as they're kind of sharing different things, and, and, and Mike was, was just kind of talking about um, how there are things that come our way we never plan for them, and we rarely expect them to come. And so he had mentioned the fact that uh, his doctor had told him, um, Mike, I want you to go in, and I want you to get your heart checked. And Mike is he's very trim. He's in really good shape, and, uh, you know, he's good health. And... And he told the doctor, he said, I'm fine, I'm fine, my heart is fine, I don't need to go in and get my heart checked, you know. And he said his doctor was kind of persistent, and so his doctor called him and said, Mike, get in, you gotta get your heart checked. So he got his heart checked and ended up having to have a, you know, triple or whatever, bypass, heart surgery. So he had the heart surgery, and so he's talking about that. And he says, it's been a setback, you know, it's been, you, you kind of have these plans, these things that you feel like the Lord is leading you into. But now, <laughs> now you're led by um, streams of restful water. Uh, maybe it's a time you don't want to rest. I don't know about you. I, I, I really do cherish each and every day because the older I get, I count each, and day, each day as something to cherish because none of us have the assurance of tomorrow. I know that when you're younger, I never thought about that when I was in my 40s uh, and, and younger than that, uh, ever thought about that. But I do now as, at 65 because I've had a lot of friends, you know, that have died unexpectedly uh, younger than me, you know. And so you just kind of, I say, oh, Lord, I just want to be busy about your work. For me, it would be absolutely horrific. I've experienced, so I'm not speaking hypothetically. I've experienced it when I've had to be uh, down. I've had to be bedridden. You know, years ago, as a young guy, uh, I've told the story many times, but playing basketball with my oldest son, I trip, I come down hard on my, my leg, my hip goes out of the socket, I fracture my pelvis. I mean, I just really did a lot of damage. The doctor said, um, he kept saying, how did this happen? How did this happen? And I kept telling him, he says, we don't see injuries like this except in like car accidents. I mean, there's just a lot, you know, there's a lot of damage here. But um, I was bedridden for uh, a few months. And the church, we were meeting in the Christian school gymnasium. And I would, and Tracy would know what I was doing. But I would, every Saturday night, I'd say, well, I'm, I'm going to go for a drive because after a while I could go for a drive. And sometimes she would drive down and say, I knew you were coming here. But 
I would drive down to the gymnasium and I would begin unstacking chairs and setting them up for Sunday morning because for me to be idle, to sit, I hate it. I hate that type of thing. But Mike was talking about that downtime. He was talking about one of their grandsons who had died of fentanyl. He said he wasn't a drug addict. Um, he actually went online because he couldn't sleep. And he, he got this stuff online. There was fentanyl in the stuff that he bought online to help him sleep, and it killed him. And he was saying, you know, this has been so hard, so devastating for our family. The, you know, we all will, all, if you haven't already, you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's, it's you know, you just, it's just part of life. Um, again, the Lewis's great-granddaughter, um, you know, they're walking through the, the potentially the valley of, of, of death, the shadow of death. You know, we did that with Joshua, our oldest. He had chronic asthma. He was hospitalized a number of times. You know, there were times when we thought, he's not going to make it. Um, even, I remember when Josh was a teenager, it was Christmas Eve, I was ripping everything off of the Christmas tree and chucking the live Christmas tree out of the house on Christmas Eve because our son was having a chronic asthma attack and we're thinking, this has got to be it. So Merry Christmas, you know. <laughs> and we checked that thing out and I think we took him to the emergency that night and it was a frightening thing. Nehemiah, you know, I mean, they talk about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, they told us if this doesn't get corrected, he's going to die. He's suffocating. He is literally being choked out. The life is being choked out of him. You know, if you have parents or, or um, loved ones, some of you have husbands, wives that have died, you know, you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's a difficult thing. Kobe in Dallas has just walked through the valley of the shadow of death with their mother. And these are difficult things. You say, why do they call it shadow of death? Well, if you're a believer, it's a shadow. You know, because um, if we believe in Jesus, we shall never die. You know, and if we die, we shall live again. I mean, that's what we just saw a few weeks ago in John chapter 11. But these are difficult things. And David says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I will fear no evil. I, I think of maybe the shadow of death. You know, when David was on the run from Saul, excuse me, he was in caves. He was in the wilderness. He was, I mean, he was in a lot of, you know, frightening situations, you know. Uh, he's, he's with his mighty men. They're loyal to him. They love him until, until their wives and children are taken. And then they wanted to kill David. Thanks a lot, David. They wanted to kill him. And, and David now is fearing the very men that had his back, the very men that, you know, would risk their life to go to Bethlehem to get him water so that he might drink something that was familiar from his childhood. And, um, and so, you know, these difficulties, these hardships, the shadow of death, you know, how is this going to end? Is Saul going to kill me? We were, Tracy and I, as we we're 
listening to some of the teachings from the pastor's conference. One of them was talking about um, David and how when he cut off the corner, it was Sandy Adams, when he cut off the corner of Saul's uh, garment, remember that? When Saul went in to relieve himself in the cave and, and then he felt guilty. And the teacher was so wonderful because it, uh, Sandy was just talking about how, you know, David, from his men's perspective, you know, kind of the speculating. And he was reading from a book. Um, in fact, I, I need one of my grandkids that can read. I need them to go through my, my, my library and my office and find that book because I want to read it again, The Tale of Three Kings. It's a wonderful, wonderful little book. Um, and it, it, it deals with David and Saul. And, but anyway, um, but he, he talked about how David felt remorse and he felt guilt after, after he cut off the, the edge of Saul's garment. And he was remorseful. And, and as the teaching was going on, as Sandy was reading some of the scriptures, he said, uh, David loved Saul. He honored Saul. He wanted to be close. He wanted Saul to love him. I mean, it wasn't just his king, but it was his father-in-law, you know, and, and just the drama of all of that and how David said, you know, I don't have any right to take your life. The Lord will deal with you. And the Lord did deal with him. You know, he allowed the Philistines, of course, to take Saul out and, and Jonathan and, and others, of course. But... But David was remorseful. And the whole kind of the, the bottom line of the teaching uh, that Sandy did was just because you can doesn't mean you should. You know, just because you, you, you can cut off the edge of his garment, you know, humiliate the king in that way, doesn't mean you should. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful teaching there. Anyway, he says, for you are with me. And then he says, you're riding your staff they comfort me. And here's one more place to turn, and that's Hebrews chapter 12. And that will be our last place to turn. And it deals with discipline. You know, guys, um, as parents, we are responsible to discipline our children, to direct our children, to teach our children, to train our children. And, and of course, discipline is not, you know, it's not always a spanking, you know, but it is a constant thing. It's something that we should, you know, sh should do. We should be fervent in it. I had mentioned earlier on that there seems to be a lot of laziness uh, among people today. And I think that the area of discipline for a lot of parents, we see laziness. They just don't want the battle. You know, I, it's just easier just not to deal with it. The problem is you don't deal with it when they're young. You will have to deal with it when they're younger. And then you'll have, you know, if they're not dealt with, you'll have these, um, you know, what do we call, uh, so the women have the, the name that are ridiculous, Karens. So you've heard that, the Karen? I don't know if men have a name for being jerks, you know, but uh, there's plenty of them as well around, you know. And it's just kind of this, um, 
you know, kind of like I'm above everything. I don't have to follow the rules. I don't have to, you know what, you're saying no to me? How dare you say no to me? And it's just a weird, strange, strange concept, you know, and the rudeness that we see in everything else. But the discipline of God, look at verse 5 of chapter 12, Hebrews. It says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. And it says, my son, do not despise the chastening or the discipline of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? You want to say, Paul? I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. Oh, you, you should wait till our time. You'll see plenty of them that are not chastened. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who correct us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed, for a few days, that's the fathers, our earthly fathers, chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, after it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness, or the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. David, he says that not only was the Lord with him in the valley of the shadow of death, but he says, your rod, it's your rod. It's not his rod, it's your rod. He's speaking to him directly. It's your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You know, I don't know if you've ever read much about uh, shepherds, especially the old shepherds or shepherds in other countries today because the shepherds in other countries today are like the shepherds of old. I mean, they really haven't changed much. Uh, kind of in the West, we have modernized shepherding, you know, and they will do things a little bit differently. But the rod, the staff, many times they would use those things to grab and to push and to pull and to knock and to, you know, kind of get the, the lamb or the sheep going in the direction that they need to go. And it was a, a rod of discipline. Now, the shepherd wasn't beating the sheep. Uh, what shepherd would do that? You're going to lose your sheep, you know. But he was keeping his sheep in line. And, you know, the Lord disciplines his own. When's the last time you've been disciplined by the Lord? When's the last time the Lord has kind of set you down and he begins to speak to you about your attitude or your motive or whatever it might be? You know, that's between you and the Lord. But he speaks to us because he loves us, because he wants us to be better. It's for his name's sake, for his name's sake, for his name's sake. You're a follower of Jesus? Yes, I'm an imperfect follower of Jesus. But for his name's sake, I want to be obedient. For his name's sake, I don't want to be a rebel. For his name's sake, I don't want to be Antifa. 
for his name's sake, I don't want to be, you know, just stirring up problems for, for, for no reason at all, for his name's sake. And then he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You know, the Lord doesn't only restore our soul, but the Lord can restore relationships. Um, I think this is a beautiful thing. When relationships that have been broken and, and um, sometimes I think some relationships are never mended because we dig our heels in and say, I'll never talk to that person again. I, um, growing up, my dad, you know, they were all men, so there were six boys in my dad's family, and men, um, typically, not always, but typically, they kind of deal with things a little bit differently, you know, um, they would, uh, you know, knock each other out or something if they disagreed, and, and then kind of get over it and move on, you know. My mother's side of the family, she had uh, quite a few sisters, six kids in her family, two brothers and then the four girls. And, um, and there were seasons, I remember growing up, where this aunt would not talk to this sister and so on and so forth, and these battles and, oh, are there, is she gonna be there? We're not coming if her family's coming, and this type of thing, and I just would think, man, that's so crazy. I've got one sister. And my sister and I, we butt heads a lot. In fact, probably the most headbutting we did was after my mother died. And um, it was a difficult time. But she's my sister after all. I'm her brother. I, we're not gonna you know, quit on each other. Um, I, I love her. I, I, you know, I, uh, I know she loves me. Um, we can disagree, we could argue, we could, uh, but we have this, this relationship that we know isn't going to just end because, you know, we're vested in each other. And, and, and I think of how many times, you know, as we're being led by the Lord, as we're being directed by the Lord, as we're going through our own hardships and our own difficulties, as we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, as we're getting the perspective that maybe we did not have before then, the Lord begins to soften our heart. He begins to change our heart. And then maybe we find that we're the ones that are reaching out. And maybe the enemies are members of your own household. Guys, it's, it's time to put away all pettiness. Jesus is coming back, and we should be sharing the gospel with as many people as possible. And some of those people might be in your own family, you know. So you gotta, you got to get over it. you got to do what you can do, and don't hold on to a grudge, because it surely won't matter in eternity. And then he says, you anoint my head with oil. The anointing of the head, we say, well, he was king after all. But you know, just as we saw last week with Jesus, anointing, anointing was something that Mary of Bethany did for Jesus, unbeknownst to her, for his burial. The sinful woman in the home of Simon the Pharisee did for Jesus uh, out of love and gratitude and all. Um, it was something that was hospitable. You invite someone to your house you wash their feet, the roads were dusty, the shoes were open-toed shoes. 
you wash their feet so they feel comfortable. Many times, uh, the Romans would even do this. You would take a little oil or a little perfume and you might dab it on the forehead. Um, you know, rather than having a house full of stinky people, now you have this sweet fragrance that's kind of filling the room. It's just a hospitable thing to do. And David, he says, you've anointed my head with oil. It's something that's soothing. It's something that's restoring. It's something that's relaxing. It's a blessing is what it is. And then the same, the thing that follows, my cup runs over. My cup runs over. It's not a good illustration, but when I was in Bulgaria, I mentioned that Bulgaria, I don't know if they've changed since communism, communism has fallen, but in Bulgaria, it's the only place in the world where the nodding of the head like this means no, and this means yes. So, of course, you, you, you can't speak the language, so they would motion, they would, you know, and, and of course they were just lavishing us. I went over there with um, three other pastors and once we got into Bulgaria, we all kind of split up and went our different ways. And I was at a, a pastor's house there and, um, and the, some people from the church, they made a wonderful meal, we had goat meat and, um, and yogurts and all sorts of things. And every time, you know, it was almost like every time you took a bite, it was like that bite was replaced with something. So I mean, they just kept, that's how they showed their hospitality. And with the drinking, you know, it was coffee, coffee, coffee. You know, if you have a soda or whatever it was, someone in the church uh, bottled their own soda. And so they had plenty of soda and, um, you know, and I would put my hand over my cup and I would go, no, thank you. No, thank you. And they would say, gah, 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 you know, my cup runneth over. And of course, as David is, is saying this, it's like you've blessed me beyond measure. Guys, you know, I say it quite often because I think we need to be reminded of it. We should have hearts of gratitude. You know, it's a... Um, It is a sign of immaturity when we throw a temper tantrum because we don't get our way. We get all bent out of shape and, you know, I want it to be the, you know, or whatever it might be. And it really is a sign of, of immaturity. And if we just kind of stepped back and, you know, gave thanks for what the Lord has given us. I had shared with the men, I, I, I'm not going to go too long tonight, but with the men on Monday night, and just about the tongue, and I was sharing with them on Saturday night that, you know, Tracy and I were kind of talking about all those trailers and motorhomes that are on the edge of town by Liberty Market, you know, and it just looks like a junkyard out there, you know, and Tracy wanted to drive out there, and so we drove out there, and and it looked, you know, I mean, there's a motorhome that was burnt down to the asphalt over here and another motorhome that's burnt down to the asphalt over here. And, and there's so much junk and, you know, and we're driving through, you know, the war zone there and wondering if there's anyone in any of these or if they've all been taken off or whatever. 
and we're complaining, and there's nothing wrong with complaining, you know, but we're just kind of talking about it. Oh, what a mess, what a mess, you know. This is, well, this is horrible, you know, the, these pictures. I mean, this is Oak Harbor, this is our town, this is Whidbey Island. I mean, they should clean this stuff up. And there's nothing wrong with having that kind of heart, you know. But we just kept talking about it. We talked about it, we went to a restaurant, we ordered our meal, we kept talking about it. As we're sitting there waiting for our meal, the Holy Spirit began to convict our hearts. Uh, I think first, Tracy, she began because she has so much compassion in her heart. And she said something like, that was horrible out there, wasn't it? And I said, yeah, it sure was. And she said, wouldn't you hate to live like that? I said, yeah, I'd hate to live like that. She says, could you imagine people living in those things? It must be so dark and cold at night. Yeah, it must be so dark and cold. And as she was just sharing things, and then I would share things, and then finally I looked at Trace and I said, we should be so thankful for how we live. And, and so often we get so caught up and get on this tangent of, you know, this needs to happen and that needs to happen. But you know what? As Trace was talking, she said, you wonder some of these people, because I'm saying, you know, where was, where's their family? Because I'm all about family. Where's their family? You know, you, you got kids on drugs. Or Where's the family? Where's the Christian family? Where's the Christian mother and father that are falling on their faces before God, pleading for the salvation of their lost child? Where are they? We, we'll, we'll see them every now and again at our prayer meetings when it gets really bad. Really bad, but it's got to be really bad. But... But I, I think of family. Where are the family? And then Tracy said, Danny, think of families today. Think of the generations. You have families that are addicted to drugs or alcohol, or they just, you know, whatever. And then children, they grow up in a home like that, and so they have no one to fall back on. They kind of follow the same pattern. And then you got the third generation. You've just got this perpetual, you know, problem that's happening. Anyway. We stopped grumbling by the time our food arrived. My point is this. We were thankful. 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 We should be thankful. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that I get to live here. When we, first, when we bought our first house, it was in town here off of Midway. There were three homes that we qualified for. Uh, we could qualify for a house that was 120000 There were three of them. Uh, one of them was in Coopville. It was a cinder block house full of mildew, you know, cinder block. It was, it, I mean, it was just really bad. There was this house in town, and then there was a, another house that uh, really was, was bad as well. And so we, we ended up buying that house. And we loved it. I mean, we never thought we'd ever be able to buy a house, and we were so excited, and this is our house. And I remember we had some people from the church come over, and they were helping us, some men helping us move into the house. And we're moving into the house, and one of the fellows that was attending the church, he lived in Anacortes, and he lived in this gigantic, gorgeous, architect-designed home on the water, and he kept saying, as he was bringing bunk beds in or something like that, 
how are you going to fit all your kids in this house? They said, oh, no, it will work. There's, you know, <laughs> there's a, it's three bedroom. You know, we'll be able to, we just, we just stack them up. <laughs> you know, we, we, that's what we do, you know. And I don't see how it's going to work. I don't see how it's going to work. And I felt like, man, stop raining on my parade. We're rejoicing that we're able to buy this place, you know. And all you can see is its limitations and how it doesn't, you know, live up to your standards and everything. I'll tell you, if we're not thankful for the $120,000, I think it was 119, I think we were just short of uh, $119,000 first home with three bedrooms, you're gonna have to stack your kids in. You'll never be thankful of your multi-billion, a million dollar home on the water in Anacortes. You never will, because it's an attitude of the heart. He says, my cup runneth over. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will dwell, I will dwell, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is what we got to get. Whatever we have in this life is temporal. Let's be thankful for what we have. And let's look forward to what's coming. I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because I'm righteous? Oh, only because of Christ. I'm accepted only because of Christ. I'm in Christ Jesus. I belong to him. Christians all over the world are persecuted. Our brothers and sisters in uh, Armenia, uh, from what I understand, and I didn't even know this until the persecution, the only Christian nation, the only Christian nation, it's not America, it's Armenia. There's like this genocide, they're being forced out. They've, they've had to leave their homes. They had to leave everything they have. They could just take what they could carry. And, and they, now they're pilgrims in the land. And, and you say, oh, gosh, how horrible that would be. Do you know that that's true for the majority of Christians on planet Earth today? It's true. You should, you know, we get the martyr, uh, Voice of the Martyr magazine. Uh, we get two copies of it here. And, um, and you look through these, and, and sometimes you see, like, uh, I remember a few issues back, there was a fellow... Um, from Africa, and he's sharing uh, how faithful the Lord is. And there's a picture of him, and his arms have been chopped off by a machete. And he's talking about the faithfulness of God, how mighty God is. He might say, my cup runneth over. And this is how the majority of Christians live in the world today. And you look at us, and we are so blessed. And sometimes I wonder if the blessings have not become a curse. A reason to not be thankful. A reason to have a very shallow existence, you know, when our, our relationship with the Lord. Because, uh, uh, you know, Lord, uh, the fact of the matter is, 
I shall not want. No, no, no. I want, I want, I want. There's a lot of wants I have, Lord. A lot of wants. I was leaving the house tonight, and I was thanking the Lord. I said to my wife, thank you, babe. She was dealing with, you know, I'm old enough now to where um, our health insurance is going away because I'm on Medicare. I am a senior citizen. And so she was working out that. And I know it's frustrating for Tracy because if you've ever tried to work out anything, Social Security, anything like that, uh, usually the person you're talking to has no idea. <laughs> they don't know the answers to the many questions that you have. So she was frustrated about it. And we were on a three-way phone call, Tracy and I, and a guy from Social Security this morning. And so anyway, I was leaving the house. And I said, babe, thank you for all you do. And she said, oh, what do you mean? I said, well, I just know that it's a hassle for you to do all of this stuff. And, and to be honest, if you weren't here to do it, I wouldn't do it at all. I just would, you know, I just let it go. And, and I said, thank you. And she goes, well, thank you, you know. And I'm making my way out, walking through the little laundry room. Thank you, Lord, for our home. Thank you for always providing a place for us. I walk out into the garage, and I've got my two uh, surfboards hanging on the wall there. And um, one of them, I've only been on, I think, twice. It's a veneer wood surfboard. I mean, beautiful board. I've only been on it twice. Afraid to take it out because it's so rocky out here. I didn't want to damage the thing, you know. And, and I, I looked up at the wall, and I'm kind of in this jovial mood. And I looked at the wall, I looked at the surfboards, and I began to laugh. And I went like this with my hand, and I said, I won't be on those ever again. <laughs> I had an experience the last time I went out, and I prayed, Lord, if you get me in alive, <laughs> this, this, this is it. This is my last time. You know, I'm too old. I don't want to be hospitalized with a head injury, you know, banging my head on a rock or something. But, but as I said that, <coughs> I was thinking, Lord, you're so good. It's not, it's not just the lack, lacking. It's so many of the wants. I'm trying to do something here. Are you catching it? That we would maybe go home tonight and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Look at your spouse. Thank you, Lord, for them. I said I wasn't going long. Have you ever... It's probably a dumb question. Have you ever older people that are married, like, you know, you've been married 10 years or more? Have you ever said to the Lord, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that I didn't marry that gal. Thank you, Lord, that I didn't stick with that guy. Thank you, Lord, for the life that I have with her, with him. Why? Because it's perfect? No. Because we're committed to one another. We love one another. We have a history. We have this longevity. We have the story 
behind us. And, 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 and we, are, we are a testimony. We are a testimony. Thank you, Lord, that we're able to be a testimony to our children of what a faithful marriage looks like. Thank you, Lord, that we're able to live and to see our grandchildren and to speak into their lives and to, to show our children, grandchildren, what marriage, you know, can look like and how there can be longevity and how we should be committed to one another. Anyway, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. I, some may think, oh, these things are silly. He's always talking about being thankful. Lord, I pray that you had imprinted upon each of our hearts to be thankful. Thank you for our health. Thank you for the bed we're going to lie in tonight. Thank you that tomorrow morning, God willing, we'll get up and we'll start a new day. Thank you for that. Thank you for the jobs we have. Thank you for the paychecks we receive, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for the cars we drive. Thank you for the clothes we wear, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We pray for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. They probably would put us to shame with their thanksgiving in light of <laughs> the little they have. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.